You know, last week I was listening to former South Carolina House Representative Trey Gowdy, and he said there is a dramatic difference between a president and a leader. Would you all agree with that? That thought kind of resonated in my spirit as we consider the differences between our present administration in America and what was going on 2,500 years ago in Jerusalem through the leadership of Nehemiah. What are the characteristics that you appreciate in a leader? One conservative commentator said, a good leader can receive criticism. That's pretty true, amen? Because it's going to come one way or the other. But a good leader can also identify with those whom they lead. And finally, he said, a good leader has this intangible quality called grit. What is grit? Grit is doing what's right when everybody else is doing wrong. Grit is a leader who does right even when those around him are advising him to do wrong. Grit is that firmness of character and that determined spirit. I think grit's pretty important in a leader. You see, we elect our leaders for more than just to call the shots. When we elect leaders, we want them to have wisdom, we want them to have courage, and we want them to have integrity and much, much more. So today, as we approach Nehemiah chapter 7, we're going to see that their mission was accomplished. The wall has been finished, and it's exciting in the city of Jerusalem. For in 52 days, in the heat of the summer, in the midst of intense opposition, this task of rebuilding the wall around the city has been successfully completed. But although this mission has been accomplished, God ain't done with Nehemiah just yet. Today, we want to recognize the type of leader that Nehemiah has become. When others would crumble, Nehemiah stood strong. When others might be frightened and give up, Nehemiah found strength and encouragement. Nehemiah has indeed become a godly leader. And Nehemiah's journey proves something to you and I. It proves a valuable lesson, not only in the church, but also in our individual lives as we strive to be a testimony and an example for others to follow. You see, in your marriage, in your family, at your workplace, and certainly in your church, you and I must have the courage to become a godly leader. But how do we do that? 
Well, again, here in Nehemiah 7, we're going to find very quickly today seven principles of godly leadership. And every one of us here today is called to be a godly leader in some shape, form, or fashion. Now, before you panic, as you look at Nehemiah chapter 7, you'll see that there are 73 verses in that chapter. Listen, I ain't reading all that. Amen. But that chapter does create for us a template, if you will, a template where we find distinctive leadership traits all throughout these verses. As we look at these godly nuggets, if you will, of godly leadership, it's clear to me that I am definitely a work in progress. Amen? As I compare myself to Nehemiah, I realize very clearly that i got a long way to go before I reach the ranks of Nehemiah. But, but I have got a holy ambition to lead like Nehemiah led. Now the first principle that I want to bring to your attention is that godly leaders identify their priority. If you'll go with me to page 437, I think, in the Bibles in front of you, uh, Nehemiah chapter 7, I'm going to read the first verse. And again, we want to reiterate that this, this whole book is really more of like a, a journal, if you will. Nehemiah is writing in his journal all the events that have transpired while he led God's people. In verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 7, he writes, Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, say gatekeepers, when the singers, say singers, and the Levites, say Levites, and the Levites had been appointed. This is important. Comedian Dave Barry once had a, a unique comment about priorities. Here's what he said. He said, if you have a woman and that woman has two choices, she can choose to catch a fly ball or she can choose to save a baby's life, she will save that baby's life without even considering if there are men on base. Come on, y'all. Y'all got to love that. Anyway, we're reminded about how important priorities are in our life. In verse 1, Nehemiah establishes three. And you actually spoke them. Three priorities. The one was the physical priority for protection. See, although the wall is done, there are still openings in the wall where the gates were. And those gates had to be guarded. Those gates had to be watched so that the enemy couldn't slip in. There had to be gatekeepers. See, although that you and I are not of this world, sadly we're still in this world. And as long as we are in this world, there will always be areas of our lives. There will always be entrances into our marriages. There will always be access into our homes that must be guarded. We are the gatekeepers. 
Things can't get to your kids unless they come through you first. Stuff can't get into your home unless it comes through you first. Things can't come into your marriage unless they go through you first. You're the gatekeeper. But there's also a spiritual priority of worship. Did you notice that Nehemiah appointed singers? Singers, Brother Howe, to help lead in worship. He understood that there is more to life than just working and making money. Amen? He understood that there must be worship. Worship brings life balance, personal life balance. Worship also helps us to remember that God is our number one priority. Worship helps us to reflect on our God-given purpose on this earth. And also teaches us to trust Him for an uncertain future. We need singers. We need singers to help us worship God in ways that we often overlook. But there's a third principle, and that is this. The intellectual priority for teaching. Nehemiah appointed Levites to teach the people. It was the Levites' responsibility to repeatedly... How many times have you told your kids repeatedly to do something and they didn't do it? Amen? Levites feel your pain. They repeatedly engaged the, the minds of God's people, young people and old people, to teach them the realities of faith in God. Now, I've read this book through dozens of times. Yet every time that I study a, a passage in this book, I learn something new. Why is that? It's because God's Word is living and active. God's Word will speak to you as a young child. God's Word will speak to you as a young person. God's Word will speak to you if you're single or if you're married or if you're a servant or a leader or a senior. Yes, this Word will speak to you even as death approaches. This Word is living and active. And so, friend, if you find yourself saying something like this, you know, lately, the preaching ain't been doing nothing for me. Yeah, lately, uh, I'm not really getting much from the messages. I've heard it all before. If that's the case, I want to suggest to you that it might be more of an engagement issue than it is a preaching issue. You see, for the Word to have its work in your life, you must be engaged heart and mind. And if you're only engaged with your mind, your mind probably is not going to be too fulfilled until you engage your heart. You're not going to see an impact from the Word of God until you engage both your heart and your mind. So Nehemiah is leading God's people by these three priorities the physical priority of protection, the spiritual priority of worship, also the intellectual priority of teaching. But Nehemiah also realizes that godly leaders also position other leaders. Let's take a look in verse 2. And Nehemiah gave the charge of Jerusalem to his brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. 
And I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at their watch station and the other in front of their own house. See, a godly leader understands that it is literally impossible for the leader to do it all. And so what does he do? He wisely delegates critical duties for the glory of God, for the good of all the people. Now, here's something we need to know. Godly leaders need to find other godly leaders. Godly leaders need to find other godly leaders. This where I feel, as a pastor, I need to do a much better job. See, delegating authority takes courage. Sometimes I'm not so courageous. Delegating also takes humility. Sometimes maybe I'm not so humble. But it takes courage and humility to recognize that there may be somebody else who can do it a lot better than the leader. But delegating authority also takes a lot of grace. At some point in the distant future, would you say that distant future? At some point in the distant future, I actually am looking forward to being a part of finding the new leader here at Bethel Baptist Church who will continue building on the foundation that we're laying here. I'll always be here, but at some point we're going to find a new leader. And I look forward to being a part of that process. Nehemiah shows us how important this is. What does he do? He delegates the leadership roles to his brother Hananiah and the leader of the citadel, Hananiah. But there's a reason that he does that. He picks these two boys for two special reasons. One, he recognizes that God is their priority. He knows that if these guys will honor God, then the people will trust him. But secondly, Nehemiah picks these two because they are reliable, faithful, and loyal. Not to Nehemiah. They are reliable, faithful, and loyal to God and to God's people. And that was what he looked for. He looked for leaders who are reverent and reliable. How important is that? So, godly leaders identify their priorities, but they also position other godly leaders. Now, godly leaders also recognize potential. Look in verse 4. Now, the city was large and spacious, but the people were in it were few. And the houses were not rebuilt. So they had rebuilt God's premises, but they had not rebuilt God's people. And we see here that in that verse, godly leaders recognize potential not only in people, but also in situations. Right? In that verse, Nehemiah shows us that a leader should never be satisfied with the existing state of affairs. They should always realize that there's always room for growth, whether it be personal spiritual growth or growth in numbers as a church family. They always realize there's room for growth. Nehemiah saw that although the walls were done, there wasn't nobody in the city. There wasn't no people. God wanted Jerusalem not only to be rebuilt in the premises, he wanted them to be repopulated with people. And he would bring the increase. So the pressure was off of Nehemiah. 
All he had to do was keep doing what God told him to do. So Nehemiah's done a great job of rebuilding God's premises. But here we find that God ain't done with him yet. Because God also wants to help him to rebuild God's people. To help them to reach their full potential for God. That's what godly leaders do. They identify their priority. They position other leaders. They recognize potential. And listen, they never, ever, ever, ever stop praying. Godly leaders pray. Take a look at the beginning of verse 5. Nehemiah says, Then my God put it in my heart. Then my God put it in my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. Praying. If a leader is going to learn the heart of God, then he must pray. If a leader is going to learn the heart of God, she must pray. Pray. This idea of repopulating Jerusalem was not Nehemiah's idea. This was God's idea. He's the one that wanted the people to be in the city. And Nehemiah has proven that he's a man that will spend time in God's presence and he will seek God's direction in everything that he does. So God directs Nehemiah and here's what he directs him to do. God directs Nehemiah to give his peeps a little history lesson. Alright? And he does that because of the next point, which is godly leaders remember past heroes. Take a look again at verse 5. Nehemiah said, Then my God put it in my heart together, the nobles, the rulers, the people, etc. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, these are the people of the province who came back from captivity of those who had been carried away, whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried away and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Now, from verse 7 to verse 60 is your homework, amen? If you can, if you can pronounce those words, you're doing a lot better than me. Uh, you take that home and you read about all of these families that came in the first return, these past heroes, okay? Um, people, we re- need to realize that leaders look back at how God has worked through previous generations. You know, we here at Bethel are very future-minded. We are looking to the future of what God's going to do through your children and your grandchildren, providing a place for them to raise their families. But it's also good from time to time to look back the groundwork and the foundation that past heroes have laid here at Bethel Baptist Church. This church is 113 years old. Think of all the previous generations who have laid godly foundations for us to build upon. I think sometimes we need to look back and honor those past heroes. Amen? The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So, Those 55 verses that I gave you for homework are more than just a list of forgotten names. No, it's more of a declaration of how dedicated those people were to the work of God. And that should inspire me and you. These heroes were willing to uproot their lives. They were willing to uproot their families from a secure and comfortable life to follow God's will to an uncertain and undetermined future. 
but they were willing to do it. That should inspire you and I. That's what godly leaders do. They recognize their roots. They identify their priority. They position of the leaders. They recognize potential. They pray, pray, pray. But they also remember these past heroes. Now number six is that godly leaders also have a passion for purity. I'm going to read for you in verse 61. These were the ones that came up from Telmalah and Telharsha, Sherub, Adon, and Emmer. But they could not identify their father's house nor their lineage, whether they were of Israel or not. Uh, there were several other names there in verse 64. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but their names were not found. And therefore they were excluded from the priesthood. Now what we find here in those verses is that there were men who applied to be priests in the nation of Israel, but they couldn't prove that, that they were from the house of Aaron, therefore they couldn't be priests. And in reading that, we find that God ain't rejecting anybody. We're not rejecting these people. It's all about maintaining purity. It's all about maintaining purity among God's people. What is purity? We all always liken purity to sexual purity. But purity is far, far more than that. Purity is in everything doing what God wants us to do. That's purity. We need leaders who have a passion for purity. To do things the way God said to do them. However, God's people are being constantly bombarded with worldliness. God's people were being constantly bombarded with false religions just like we are today. And sadly, much like today, many are compromising their faith. Many are, are following belief systems that don't require them to be obedient to our holy God. But listen, our, our Bible says, God says, be holy for I am holy. And if God told us to do it, then he would make it possible for us to do. Amen? We can be holy if we're willing to get out of the way and let the Spirit be holy through us. Friends, God calls His people to a lifetime of purity. A lifetime of purity. Now finally, we also find that godly leaders establish a pattern of giving. In verse 66 and on, we find A, a history... But then we also find a pattern of giving. Check this out in verse 66. Altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360. That's a big church, amen? That's the way I've, that's the way I've been feeling here lately with all of y'all here. It feels like about 43,000 people, praise God. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, they also had 245 men and women singers. Now, the horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and the donkeys 6,720. It's a lot of animals, amen, a lot of hay. But listen to this part, beginning in verse 70. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave.
They gave to the work of God. The governor. Who's the governor? Nehemiah is the governor. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas. That's 17 pounds of gold. Gold is about $1,900 an ounce. There's 16 ounces in a pound. You do the math. But he also gave 50 basins, 530 priestly garments. Then, verse 71, some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas, 337 pounds of gold. 1,900 times 16 ounces times 337. You do the math. But he didn't, the, the people didn't stop there. This is just the leaders, mind you. Because they also gave 2,200 silver minus. That's 3,215 3, pounds of silver. It's a lot of silver. So we got the governor giving. We got the heads of the various families giving. But then we also find in verse 72, and that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, an additional 337 pounds of gold. And 2,000 silver minas, an additional 2,913 pounds of silver, along with 60 priestly garments. So in those verses, what we find first is a focus on the leadership. See, if leaders love God, if leaders love the work of God, they will sacrificially give. He starts with the leaders. Those who love God's word will never neglect God's work. It starts with the leaders. And notice that Nehemiah leads the way, giving 17 pounds of gold as a form of sacrificial giving. But listen, this is much more than just the giving of a tithe. The totals of these gifts were far beyond what was expected of them. In total, they gave nearly 700 pounds of gold. And they gave over 6,000 pounds of silver to the work of God. Now, here's what's really important to know. Their homes, their farms, and their businesses were still being rebuilt. The economy was in shambles. The economy was far from stable. But the people put God first. They believed if they would honor God, then God would honor their giving. You see, that's really what New Testament giving is all about. New Testament giving is giving not because you're forced to, not because you're supposed to, not because you have to. New Testament giving is giving because you want to. It's grace giving. And today, Janet and I wanted to lead the way. We want to lead the way in planting the first of many seeds that will be planted into our building fund so that we can begin preparing for the future of God's people here. In the days and weeks and months ahead, I want to encourage you to pray, to pray, and to pray. And you follow 
as the Lord directs you. As we consider Nehemiah's leadership example, we find that it is absolutely imperative that God's people lead in a godly way. Nehemiah did. He led with courage. Over and again, he faced opposition. He kept his focus on God. But he relentlessly pursued what God told him to do. And did it. See, that's what godly leaders do. They identify their priority. They position other leaders. They recognize potential. They pray their hearts out. They remember past heroes. They have a passion for purity. And they establish a pattern of giving. Friends, can I tell you that that is exactly what God did for you? God gave for you. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God didn't send His Son to condemn the world. He sent His Son that through Him the world might be saved. We talked in our life group this morning that we as believers ought to be willing to pluck those up from out of the fire. That's a high and holy calling for the people of God. God uses us as instruments through which He saves people by sharing that great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, I want you to know today that you can be saved. You don't have to leave here not knowing that you're going to heaven. You don't have to leave here with some kind of uncertainty that you think, oh my goodness, I'm facing the unbearable penalty of sin. No, you can leave this building, this service, knowing that you'll be spending an eternity with your maker. And it all comes by his grace through faith in his only begotten son, Jesus. So friend, while this decision song is being sung, don't hesitate. If the Lord is directing you to come and make things right by accepting his great and glorious gift, don't hesitate. You come as we sing. Let me pray for you. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice at your gospel. And we thank you that while we have an inherent sin nature, we have a propensity to sin and keep on sinning. Father, you sent a son who saves and keeps on saving. And we give you praise for Jesus today. And Father, I ask that if there is one person that is in this building, one person listening, that needs to know the glorious, saving gospel of Jesus Christ, Father, they would come and receive it. I'll just share with them what the Bible says. And they too can be gloriously saved from the unbearable penalty of sin. Father, we love you and we thank you that you first loved us. That while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus to save us. Lord, in that respect, you are the most awesome leader of all time. Now, Lord, I pray that 
if there's a decision to be made today, you would encourage that person to take the first step of faith. You'll take the rest of the steps if they'll take that first step of faith. And we'll give you praise in advance for what you're going to do today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, let's everybody stand. Let's sing for our invitation. Great is thy faithfulness.